We'll never get it out now. So certain are you. Always with you, what cannot be done. Do you nothing that I say? Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do. Or do not. There is no try. On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome returning guest, Academy Award-winning editor Paul Hirsch. In a 50-year career, Mr. Hirsch has made indelible contributions to the landscape of popular American culture through his brilliant command of the medium of film editing, as evidenced in such films as Phantom of the Paradise, Carrie, The Fury, Footloose, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Mission Impossible the first and fourth chapters of that series. Still Magnolias, the biopic of Ray Charles, Ray, which netted him another Oscar nomination. In addition to all of this, Mr. Hirsch is also responsible for co-editing the original 1977 film Star Wars, for which he won an Oscar, and its sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. Mr. Hirsch joins us to celebrate the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back in this special episode and what all this also we're going to begin here by telling listeners that you do have a book it's entitled uh, a long time ago in a cutting room far far away it is a terrific memoir it is brimming with both insights and humanity and it's a great peek into the process of filmmaking uh, i found it to be utterly fascinating and i'm sure i will be reading it again so i want to recommend all of our listeners out there to if they can pick up a copy of this book it is uh, more than recommended thank you very much adam <laughs> you are quite welcome uh, and i meant all of it that's <laughs> true um what I wanted to do, though, basically, was just give you an opportunity to basically give us a quick recap of the events leading up to your editing of Star Wars. And, you know, you don't have to – you can tell as much or as little as you want to, whatever suits you. But I just wanted to give our listeners a little bit of the back, you know, the basic background as to how you got to Star Wars. And then we can jump from there to Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Well, um, I go into this in great detail in the book, as you know. and. Um, it's hard to know exactly where the story begins, but suffice it to say that uh, in 1971, Brian De Palma and George Lucas were both directing films on the Warner Brothers lot, and they became friendly because they were the youngest directors on the lot. And uh, the friendship began then, and subsequently I edited a picture for Brian called Sisters, and... Um, and the following picture that we did together was called Phantom of the Paradise. And there was a screening at the 20th Century Fox lot uh, of Phantom of the Paradise. And uh, George and his wife, Marsha, who was a film editor herself, were at the screening. And I made George's acquaintance then. And he told me he liked my work. And uh, I said, thank you very much. And. That was sort of that. And then um, sometime later, um, I was working with Brian. Uh, I got a call from Marshall Lucas. Uh, I was living in New York at the time, was based in New York. 
and Marsha lived out in California, and she was working on Taxi Driver. So I guess this would have been in 1975, I suppose. She called and she said, um, we need help editing Taxi Driver. Are you available to come work on it? Because you know, you've worked with Bernard Herrmann, and it would be a great help to have you uh, on the picture. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And she called back the next day and she said the studio wouldn't allow it. They said they have enough editors in California. They're not going to pay to bring a, a, an editor from New York to work on the picture. So that was that. So then um, uh, after Phantom of the Paradise, I did a picture with Brian called Obsession. And um, then we did another picture that was to follow called Carrie. And uh, Brian, uh, George was getting ready to shoot Star Wars at the same time. And uh, I was hired by Brian to do Carrie, and George went off to England to shoot Star Wars. And Marsha was uh, one of the editors on Star Wars. Uh, the, on the completion of principal photography in England, George and Marsha came back to the States through New York. And Brian and I had finished our cut of Carrie, we screened it for them, and they liked it very much. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from Marsha. Um, they had they had fired their editor in England because George was unhappy with the cut. And Marsha called and she said, you know, we're recutting the picture. Are you available to come work on the picture? And I said, am I going to get a call from the studio again tomorrow saying it's not going to be possible and she said no 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 this is this is a different situation and so um that's how i wound up working on the picture and i had to finish carrie first uh so i began work on star wars around the end of september 1976 and marcia and richard chu had already started helping out on the picture as well and the three of us worked together uh, through October, November, December, my deal was up at the end of the year. And um, around December, Marty Scorsese had been cutting uh, his picture, New York, New York, starring Bob De Niro and Liza Minnelli in Los Angeles, and his editor passed away. So he called Marsha to find out if she could come and take over the picture. And um, she spoke to George and George said, well, I really I think it's fine because I, I'm ready to cut the picture with just one editor at this point. And uh, as she was telling me this, I thought she was going to say, well, goodbye and good luck. Thank you very much. You know, because my deal was up at the end of the year. Uh, and I assumed that Richard Chu, who had been hired before me, would be staying on. But it turned out that. George decided he wanted to finish the picture with me. And I didn't know that uh, Richard had been hired on the same basis as me, only through the end of the year. So um, I wound up being the editor on the picture from January to the release in May, uh, during which time we did a lot of um, polishing, of course. And then there was an, a, a bit of reshoot, uh, new, new shooting, additional shooting, that took place during post 
to uh, fill in some of the gaps in the story that we needed to cover. Um, so that was basically it. And, and then uh, when, uh, when the sequel was planned, uh, Gary Kurtz, the producer, asked me if I wanted to work on it. And I said, of course, you know. Although George had decided not to direct the sequel because uh, it had been an enormous strain on him. The first, the first picture had been very difficult for him, and he didn't want to go through it again. And uh, a friend of his name, Matthew Robbins, had worked for Irvin Kirshner, and Kirsch had already directed a big-budget sequel to a hit movie. He did the sequel to A Man Called Horse, and he had performed really well, and George met him and liked him and hired him to be the director on um, the sequel to Star Wars, uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Well, that's, that's an inter- interesting trajectory, to say the, the least, I would say. <laughs> it's, 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 um, it's a pretty amazing story, really. Uh, and of course, in the interim between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, you you won the Academy Award, which um, I know in your book you stated that you thought it was a bit of a surprise. You weren't quite expecting that. <laughs> well, we had been nominated for um, an Eddie Award, which is what the editors give, and we didn't win that. So I thought, well, you know, it's unlikely this guy from New York and uh, the editor, you know, the director's wife, and you know. I, I, I thought we're not gonna we're not gonna win, you know. But but we did. Yeah, it's it's well it's well deserved to say the least. And there are a couple of other films on your resume that you probably should have been nominated and won for as well. But but that's another story. <laughs> so um so we'll we'll get into the Empire Strikes Back. I think it was early in 1979, and you were actually in London. I think. During the production, and I know you stated several times in your book that it it gets to be a little bit boring when you are on a film set that you prefer to just you know maybe visit and then wait till the footage starts coming in and you can get some get the ball rolling doing what you do best. Yeah, I like I like to be busy, and I really have no particular function when I'm on the set. I can really be busy when I'm you know in my cutting room working. I mean, I like to visit the set. It's fun for a little while, but everyone else has a job to do, and I'm just an observer, so um, I can only keep you interested for so long. Yeah, sure. I, I can imagine that. And, um, of course, it's it, they're, they're very long days, of course, I'm sure, and it's a lot of tediousness going on as they are you know, setting up and taking down and setting up and all that type of stuff. Um, but you you were there during the early the first couple of weeks I I think if memory serves from your book. Well, uh, actually, the first bit that they shot was the second unit in in Norway. They went and shot the Hoth uh, battle scenes, the plates for the battle scenes, uh, and the soldiers in you know snow uniforms and so forth. So that was the first shooting that took place, and I was not involved in the Norway stuff. But I came on when they got back from Norway and uh, started shooting on the uh, on the lot at Boreham Wood in England. 
So uh, I was just curious about the uh, the time frame of the shooting of the film. Uh, how long yeah. uh, that the actual shooting process? We know it, it was released, of course, in May of 1980, and uh, we're talking around April of 1979 when you first uh, got there, I believe, if I remember correctly. So right. So the film was the film was scheduled to shoot over 16 weeks, and um, we arrived in. Uh, I guess it was around March 1st, something like that. So we expect, or mid-February, something, something along those lines. And so we expected to be going home around June, the end of mid to the end of June. After a week, uh, Gary Kirst came to me. He says, "I think we're going to be here an extra week. So plan on being here for an extra week." So another week went by. He says, "I think it's going to be actually two weeks, not one week longer." And then. It kept, you know, the, the the horizon kept moving away. The closer we got to it, the longer, the further away. It got. And uh, they wound up shooting 29 weeks instead of 60. Um, for tax reasons, I had to leave the country before 26 weeks were up, because if you um, spend more than half the year in in the UK, you have to pay taxes there. So um, anyway, so I, I I was sent back to the United States just before my 26 weeks would have been up, and the last three weeks of shooting I wasn't around for. Hmm. Barely missed it, as they say. <laughs> oh, well. Now you actually did the cutting back in America. Is that correct, or when you started to actually? putting the film together was that done after you'd gotten well back? i do that i do that every day during production i mean normally when you know the film is not shot in sequence there are production reasons for scheduling one scene before another availability ability of actors you want if you bring an actor for two weeks you want to shoot all the scenes within those two weeks so um or availability of a location you have to be in and out in two days or whatever so there are various reasons why Pictures are shot out of order, but usually when a scene is shot, like a location has to be finished in two days, after those two days, there's never going to be any more material for that sequence. So there's no reason not to start putting that sequence together. So that's what we do. So as the film is being shot, I'm putting together the first cut of the picture scene by scene. And um, eventually... You know, first there are gaps and things out of order, and then eventually all the gaps are filled in, and you have a whole first cut. And the idea is to put everything in there, stand it up on its feet so you can take a look at it and see what you're dealing with before you start making uh, editing decisions. So this process is one that I think of as building. I'm building the picture uh, while they're shooting it. Yeah, I... um... I probably didn't make myself clear. What I, I guess what I meant to say was, I, uh, did you finish the film when you got back to America? Did, were you able to – I'm sure there was some stuff that you that you weren't able to get completed in time before you had to come back to America. Yeah, well, I usually, I'm usually uh, able – especially when I started working on computers, which was not the case on Empire Strikes Back, but uh, – 
I was usually able to keep up with camera pretty much. And uh, traditionally, I was able to deliver a cut of the film one week after the end of principal photography. Now be the first cut, the first is really the beginning of the editing process when you have the whole thing in front of you and you start making decisions about what you need and what you don't need. Um, and yeah, so in the case of, um, of uh, Empire, it was a simple matter to, uh, we had, the, the film came in so slowly that I was able to show the cut, you know, virtually as soon as they got back from England. Um, and then we locked the picture one month later. By that, I mean no further changes. When we um, watched the picture for the first time, George liked to watch a picture twice. He'd like to watch it once without taking any notes, just to watch the picture, have an experience, and experience the whole thing. And then that'd be in the morning. Then you'd break for lunch. You'd come back and you watch the picture a second time. And then you start making notes about things that you thought were unnecessary in the long, wrong place to, you know, whatever the note is, it's, it goes too fast. It goes too slow. It's in the wrong place. We don't need it. Whatever the, you know, the concerns are. And then, uh, everyone took their notes. Uh, George, Kirsch, uh, Gary Kurtz, Marsha, Larry Kasdan, who had written the screenplay and myself, and uh, then we put it up on the chem, the same group, we put it on the chem and go through it, and uh, we had any, when anyone, anyone had a, a note to give, we would stop and we'd have a discussion about it. George was the final arbiter whether, whether I should do the note or not, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in my recollection, I don't think he ever overruled Kirsch. Whatever Kirsch wanted to change, George said, yes, do it. So I think Kirsch was happy with the outcome. Yeah, that, that brings up another uh, question I had, actually, because I know there was a little bit of a, a tension between Lucas and Kurtz and uh, Kirshner, because I think Kurtz was – uh, Gary Kurtz was taking the side of Irving Kirshner, who was uh, he had his reasons. His pace was a little slower than what Lucas wanted, I believe, and um, Lucas was trying to rush him, and it just there was a little tension there. And so I was going to get you to talk maybe well, a little. The tension, more. the tension resulted from you know a schedule of 16 weeks ballooning into 29, and George mm -hmm. was paying for the picture out of his own pocket. Um, he was financing the film this time, and. Um, he was feeling a lot of pressure because he was basically rolling the dice with his own fortune to pay for the movie. And uh, he was not happy about what he considered to be, you know, I guess he considered wasted money, taking too much time and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I, I knew that there was uh, a, a little well, that's bit an of... Ordinary, that's, that's an ordinary kind of situation i mean it's you know it's not a it's not a personal animosity or anything like that it's just you know the business needs versus the director who works a certain way or whatever you know mm -hmm. yeah I, I i didn't know if that led to maybe his parting company with gary kurtz uh, when they went on to do return of the jedi or um because they had some disagreements there or maybe it was gary kurtz's decision um but uh, I, 
What do you mean? Because I, I believe Gary produced Jedi, didn't he? Uh, I was thinking it was Howard. Oh, Howard yeah, how, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's who it was. It was. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened there. I, I was not invited back because uh, George hired an English director who insisted on his own editor, which I think is commendable. Frankly, I think loyalty is a nice quality. And, you know, I was disappointed not to get the job, but I understood. And he had good reasons. Yeah. I know he wanted to use a British crew, and that was one of the reasons why I think he brought in uh, Mark Wand to direct, I believe. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, well, th now there's an interesting story about a teaser trailer that you were commissioned to put together, I believe. If I, yes. That's an interesting story, if you, if you don't mind sharing that. Yeah, sure. Gary came by the cutting room one day. He said, uh, we're going to need a trailer for the movie. And I said, yeah. And uh, I said, is there a script for it? He said, no, but just, you know, start thinking about it. I said, well, we don't have any film yet. He said, well, you know, just think about it. <laughs> so uh, the film was coming in kind of slowly. I was usually able to cut everything from the day before by lunchtime. So I thought, you know, I should work on this trailer because I know they're going to need, they're going to ask me for it soon. I better get ready for it. So. I had worked in trailers when I was coming up. So I wrote a little script uh, myself and uh, put together a trailer with the few shots that I had at the time. And I stole some uh, graphic uh, of Star Wars. I forget. I, maybe I took it from, uh, from a, a Star Wars trailer. I forget where I got it, but. Anyway, I used the music from Star Wars and the few shots that I had and the script that I'd written and I uh, cut together this trailer and I needed uh, uh, an announcer to read the script so I could play it over the over the action. And um, I wanted a um, an American voice because, you know, it was an American film. And uh, so at that time, Mark Hamill was... Um, his wife, Mary Lou, was expecting their first child. And Mark had been asked so many times about, you know, has the baby come yet? Has the baby come yet? He started wearing a sign around his neck saying, don't ask. He had a cardboard <laughs> sign. All of a sudden, don't ask. And he was getting a little touchy about, you know, all the questions about Mary Lou, how's she doing and all this. So anyway... Uh, so I decided to just steer clear of Mark, and I looked up Harrison. And I said, Harrison, I need a favor. I need an announcer for this trailer that I'm cutting. And he said, how, how much are they paying you? I said, paying me? They're not paying me anything. He said, what? That's not right, you know. I said, well, they're not. He says, well, he says, you need an American actor. I said, yeah. He says, and not, you don't have too much choice, do you? I said, no, I don't. He said, so he agreed to do it. <laughs> so, so I, we, he did, he, he knocked off the narration in half an hour at the end of the day. We went into a studio on a lot. So, um, I mixed it together and I sent it off to, to California and I got a phone call from one of George's assistants. He said, George loves the trailer and he loves the announcer. Who is that? We'd like to hire him for the final. So I said, well, that's Harrison. 
He said, who? <laughs> I said, Harrison Ford, you know, one of the stars of the movie. And, oh, my gosh, you know. I had had Harrison play it like a newsboy uh, calling out extra, extra, read all about it, sort of a, you know, excited, uh, up, you know, loud, kind of very different from the Han Solo character, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was playing it like, like a newsboy calling out an extra edition. So apparently the trailer is out there on the Internet somewhere. I think you can find it on YouTube. I thought it was gone and never seen again because George tried it out on the exhibitors and they hated it. All the exhibitors, they, they thought it wasn't uh, dignified enough, you know. And uh, I think one of the great things about the original film was how much uh, pure fun it was. And I think that um, if there's a flaw in the later films, it's that they seem to have lost that, that element of fun. It got sort of self-important somehow. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Now, the creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Continuing story of our band of heroes, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains. They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. A galactic odyssey against oppression. Big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer. When I, was, when I uh, heard, from, heard back from, from California that George had liked the trailer, I went looking for, for Harrison. I found him outside a soundstage and said, Harrison... We're a hit. They like us. He says, really? I said, I said, yeah, they want to use you for the final. He said, wait, hold on. He says, they pay big money for that. Said, and then he said, oh, that's when he asked me how much I was making on the uh, first cutting. And I said, I'm not making anything. He said, what? He said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to ask for $10,000 and I'm going to give you half. <laughs> so just that moment, Gary Kurtz came walking up. He said, Harrison, I wonder if I could talk to you for a second. And Harrison said, sure, Gary, put his arm around and he walked around his shoulders and he walked away, he gave me a little wink as he walked away. And uh, he came back a few minutes later and he said to me, he said, I only had the nerve to ask him for five grand. And about a week later, I got a check from Harrison for twenty five hundred dollars. 
I, you know, completely uh, unsolicited. It was really a nice gesture, and um, yeah, I never forgot it. Wow, that's that's a great story. That's that's well, it's too bad that. Well, I mean, I'm glad that it's out there. I'm glad it's not lo- totally lost. That people can actually see it. So so that's a good thing. Although it didn't, unfortunately, didn't get the distribution you'd hoped, maybe. But um, anyway, I was curious about some of the challenges in editing uh, Empire versus the challenges you had in Star Wars. I know the budget was probably, well, definitely a little bit bigger. You had a little more leeway there, but um, still challenges, I'm sure. And um, I was just curious about that. Yeah, bigger budget doesn't mean fewer challenges, really. Um, I mean... Think about it. If you have to choose between red and blue, it's pretty easy to make that choice. If you have a bigger budget and you can afford to buy more colors, now maybe you have 10 reds and 10 blues. So it takes you a little bit longer to decide if you like red or blue and which red and which blue, you know what I mean? The, the, the budget buys you a lot more choices, which is make, makes the work more challenging. When you, when you have limited choices, it makes your work simple in a way. Um, and the other thing to remember is that I was hired to help out on Star Wars. The picture had already been edited. Uh, not not a terrific first pass, I have to say. But uh, I was, you know, I was re-editing from the, from the get-go on Star Wars. Whereas Empire, I was doing the work from the ground up. I was cutting the first cut myself. And actually, um, that's easier for me. It's easier to get it right the first time than to try to figure out what's wrong with something and how to fix it, you know. Um, and being the editor on during the production, I was able to see all the dailies and I was familiar with the material. And um, when you come in after the picture's been shot, it's it's impossible. It's almost impossible to really learn the material in the way that you would if you were on the picture every day. You know? So, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, Empire was one of these magical projects that the script was right, the shooting was done right, and we locked the picture one month after the end of principal photography, and it just worked. Um, there wasn't a lot of fussing around and recutting and scratching our heads and trying to figure out how to solve problems. It was it was something that just really worked. And the other thing to remember about uh, Empire Strikes Back is that it was a very bold and daring film in that it was the sequel to the biggest hit of all time, and yet it was not a carbon copy of the first film. You would have thought that a studio making a sequel to this you know, the first Star Wars would want a picture that had the same kind of formula. You'd have a uh, a problem, the heroes would solve it, and there'd be a big battle at the end, and they'd come out triumphant. Well, Empire turned it on its head, and they had the big battle in the opening scene, uh, almost the opening scenes, and then it resolves uh, very... Um, um, ambivalently at the end, ambiguously. It resolves very ambiguously at the end because it's really 
the end of a second act of a three-act drama. And, you know, the thing about this end of the second act is you you get your hero up a tree and then you set the tree on fire. That's how the second act is supposed to end. So it's not exactly a crowd pleaser to leave uh, something uh, as irresolute as the ending of Empire. Luke has had his hand cut off, although he gets a mechanical one back. And uh, Vader is out there and, you know... Um, the audience had to wait three years to find out what would happen next. So it was a very daring and bold uh, choice to make the picture as it was. I don't think that's appreciated uh, today to the degree that it, you know, it was very risky. And in fact, it didn't make as much as the first film and it didn't make as much as the third film. Because I think what I outlined is the reason why. Yeah, that, and that totally makes sense. Um, but it's funny how, in hindsight, people think that it's one of the best sequels of all time, obviously, and it's a film that, uh, when people uh, cite one of the best episodes of the series, that's the one they always go to. Maybe the one they always go to, Sometimes, in some cases even more so than the original Star Wars. So it has, the choices he made have... Uh, proven him right over time, I guess you would say. Um, uh, so wise, wise choices, but, but like you said, at the time, very risky. Nevertheless, um, did you have any specific advantages when you were cutting Empire over what you had in Star Wars? Was it was there anything that was a little made life a little easier for you? I should say. Yeah, well, not to get too wonky about it, but uh, on the first film, they had used an English slating system which made my work as the editor very complicated. And on the sequel, on Empire, I had them use the American slating system. And I won't go into too much detail about it, but it made my life enormously easier working that way. Um, yeah, I, um, as I say, it's an advantage for me to be the editor from the get-go and not be recutting somebody else's, somebody else's work. Yeah, and and you were the last one on Star Wars as well, so you kind of were there, like you said, uh, working with what they had already done. This was a totally uh, different thing, and um, and yet you made it your own for sure. Uh, in both cases, I think it definitely has your the the hallmarks of what we know from from what from seeing your other work. We can it's it's there. I can see it anyway. If nobody else can, so <laughs> um, yeah. I was curious about. Oh, go ahead. Vader. Uh, I saw the dailies from the first day, and I ran to the set and I said, "There's something wrong with the helmet. It's not. It doesn't look right." And we we looked at the days from the day before. And we looked at old pictures, and they had they had they had it too high in the back, so they they had it, they adjusted it. And if I hadn't been familiar with the way Vader looked, I wouldn't have caught it. You know. Yeah. Now that's an interesting story. Um, yeah, I, I was curious about also the were there any specific scenes that you had to say goodbye to for whatever reason that you hated to see go or or not? I'm always curious about the things that hit the cutting room floor. If there's anything that really pained you to, you know, I don't remember anything like that. Uh, it was a script 
that really worked. And of course, you know, Adam it was 40 years ago. So <laughs> yes, it was. That's true. <laughs> but a lot of pictures since then. I, I don't remember any particular things that I that we cut out. Really, I I haven't. You know, I thought the stuff with the R2 on uh, not R2 with C3PO on the Wookiee's back as they're making escape their escape from Cloud City. I thought that was all wonderful, wonderfully comic stuff. And I think Kirsch helped uh, keep the comic and fun feeling of the first film alive in the second one. I think uh, some of the work that he did with the, uh, the relationship between Han and Chewbacca, some really you know wonderful comic stuff and the and the 3PO Anthony Daniels uh, on on uh, Chewie's back, even though it wasn't Ant- you know it was Anthony's voice and a puppet, but um, still all that stuff is really um, wonderful stuff. He 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 worked really well with developing those those characters. Yeah, did you actually get this to witness Frank Oz uh, while he was there doing the Yoda? Puppet, I, I did. I couldn't remember if you were actually there or were witness to any of that. Well, I yeah, but except that Frank was under the floor. He was shooting <laughs> on a platform. Yes. And uh, the puppet was sitting on the floor of the platform, and Frank was under the floor with his hand up inside Yoda, and uh, watching his performance on a little monitor next to him on, under the floor. So. I could, and I couldn't hear very well because, you know, I guess maybe I did, I, I forget. When you visit a set, they always give you a pair of earphones so you can hear the dialogue. It's sort of standard now. I'm not sure that was the practice 40 years ago. But um, but like I say, if you visit the set, there wasn't much to see of what Frank was doing. You know, you'd right. see the, the effect, but you wouldn't see, unless you were under the floor, you wouldn't see what he was doing. And I think there were a few other one or two other people helping him moving the hand or, you know, he didn't do all the, all the parts of the puppet himself. There were other puppeteers working with him, but I, of course I did meet Frank and, and, uh, I also met, uh, Jim Henson who came to visit one day. That was exciting. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah I'm big, big Jim Henson fan here. So, and, and a, a huge admirer of his work as well. So, um, oh, yeah. What, yeah, well, um, I think I, I think I'm out of questions actually, and I don't want to keep you too long anyway. So, um, but yeah, th- th- your work on this film, like I said, is what a good portion of what makes it what it is, and uh, it is just a terrific achievement for you and really for everybody involved, yeah. I, I guess. But um, yeah, it, it really is. I, I do have a couple of um, questions. Unrelated to Empire Strikes Back, I just have to ask you while I have you, and one of which is a question that has been burning on my mind for 20 years, I would say at least, and it's in regards to planes, trains, and automobiles. And I know that the original cut was very long. You've mentioned that several times. And uh, I know that towards the end of the film, John Candy has a black eye. And and I, I never could figure out why. He has a black eye towards the end of the film because it's a joke that obviously was cut 
from the film, and I didn't know if you could recall that or. It doesn't um, Steve at the end of the highway sequence. Yeah, I. They they didn't really make it clear as to, because it happened somewhere along the the uh, after they're busted in the car by the by the state trooper and then it just after the oh, before that before that okay the night it, it, the night okay. before when the car burns up Steve is holding candy by the lapels he's shaking him back and forth okay yes 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 doesn't that end with him punching him in the face. I know he he slugs him in the gut. There's a scene where he where he punches him in the gut, but I don't recall him punching him in the face. But maybe maybe it's done so quickly that I didn't that I've never. But I just it, it's there. It isn't there, and then it is there. And I was wondering if there was something else that I was missing, and maybe I'm not. Maybe it's it's all there, and I just didn't. <laughs> well, we cut out so much stuff. I mean, we cut out more than we left in, you know. So inevitably, they're going to be some gaps in the continuity and, you know, uh, all I can say is when, when rug makers in the Middle East make a rug, they always leave in an, imper an imperfection because to try to make the rug perfect would be an affront to Allah. And <laughs> the imperfections in the rug are a reflection of our own imperfections as human beings. So any imperfection in the continuity of planes, trains, and automobiles is a reflection of our imperfection as humans. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So I beg your indulgence. <laughs> well, I love the film. I love it, and I love your work on it again. Um, there's just Thank so you. many, so much great stuff there, and it's a perennial favorite here. It has been for 30-plus years, so what can I tell you? Um, um, yeah. Have you seen it in an audience with in a theater with an audience around you? I have, but it's again, it was during its original release in '87. Yeah, I'm I'm old enough to have, to to have been there. So yeah, I uh, I was there, but yeah, it's been a long time. I was at a screening of it in Chicago in uh, I guess it was November of last year, and we had an audience in a theater, and the experience of watching it that way with a live crowd sitting in a live crowd is so different from watching it on your home system. It's a whole other experience in itself. Yeah, it really, it really is. And, and like I said, it's been so long. I haven't been able to catch it in a revival house. Uh, and I'm hoping that does happen one day. Um, it was such a joy for me to share it with my children. Um, as they were coming up, my daughter, I'll never forget the first time that I showed, the film to her and she literally fell off of the out of her seat that she was sitting in she was laughing so hard she fell onto the floor on her hands and knees she just she, I, I had to stop the film because it was the, it was to the point where it was we, we couldn't go any farther and so uh when we got when they got to the sequence where um they're you know obviously driving on the highway in the opposite direction and that whole thing. She just she she couldn't breathe. I had to stop the film. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it it lives on. Huh? Yeah, I said it lives on. It lives on through the generations. Is what I'm uh, getting at. So um, it'd be nice yeah. if, if she could see it in a in a theater with a crowd. It's a whole different. I know. Thing. I'm gonna have to keep my eyes peeled for that. Uh, hopefully, we can get past this Corona stuff, and then then we can start uh, and, and maybe by the 
by the time uh, that the uh, Thanksgiving season rolls around, we'll be able to maybe find <laughs> something. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I'm not hopeful. I was reading about the, ni- the 1918 epidemic lasted three years. Oh, geez. I didn't yeah. know it was quite that long. Oh, <laughs> hoping for the best. I know that's an old platitude and a cliche, but, uh, you know, it's all, it's all we can do. I worry that I, think, I worry that theaters may not be able to come back from this. I have the same feeling. Uh, my producer and I, we do this show. We do just a regular show uh, about twice a month. And on our last episode, we kind of scratched the surface on that. And I do think, and of course, what do I know? But uh, And my full-time job, I'm in news media, so that's my, my day job. This is just a... A, a part-time thing for me, but uh, I, I, you know, just based on what I'm seeing, I wonder if some of the theater chains might go bankrupt. Uh, unfortunately, I and I hope. I have a friend that does work for Netflix, and he was saying one of the executives there predicted that by the end of the year, 6,000 screens will have closed and never never open again. Out of well, there are 25,000 screens, so it's like 25% of the theaters. Not that with the screens, you know, obviously there are multiple screens in each theater. So he, he thought 6,000 screens would go away and never come back. Oh, Jesus. That's that's horrible to hear. And and it's not – I don't think it's unfathomable. I think that's a, a realistic prediction. I, I really do. Um, yeah, it's just, it's very... They're already under pressure from, uh, you, know, the, you know, the streaming and the uh, social media – Young kids today don't care about movies for terribly much. You know, they're not that interested. They're interested in YouTube and Instagram and, you know, uh, video games and Fortnite. And that's what's driving the culture today. It's not movies anymore. Yeah, I think Joe Dante said it best. I heard him say in a recent interview, he said, uh, you know, the movies are a 20th century art form. Unfortunately, we don't live in the 20th century anymore. And I thought that was very prophetic uh, to hear him say that. Uh, I'm still a a movie guy. I will be there until they close the last theater. So (laughs) I've been going since I was four years old, and that was a long time ago. So I, uh, I don't plan on stopping. Hey, that's the name um, of my book. A long time ago. That's, that's right. A long time ago in a uh, cutting, cutting room far, far away. Yes, we want to get that plug in one more time for any of our listeners who are looking for a great book on on the technique of editing and, like I said, also brimming, brimming with humanity as well. It's a, fun, it's a fun read that'll get your mind off the current events. 